Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today's guest is Annie Barrows, who joins us on the telephone from California. Annie is the co-author of a book, along with Marianne Schaefer, that you've all heard of. The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which was published in 2008. Apparently it's been published in 37 countries and in 32 languages. It is a bestseller in the truest sense of that word and continues to be immensely popular. You might have seen the Netflix adaptation. We come back to the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which is quite a mouthful, in a second. Annie is also the author of various books for adults and children. Her Ivy and Bean series stretches to a dozen books that have been delighting young readers around the world since 2006. One of Annie's novels for adults is The Truth According to Us, a story set in 1938 small-town America during tough economic times. Annie has a degree in medieval history and a master's in creative writing and has worked as an, edit- as an editor for the publishing house Chronicle Books before becoming a writer herself. Welcome, Annie. Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, I'm sure you've told this story many times, but in your own words, can you please describe how you came to be listed as the co-author for the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society novel? Well, it all began um, when my Aunt Marianne was writing the book. Now, my Aunt Marianne was, for as long as I can remember, a writer. She had been writing all of, all of my life and most of her life, and what she was not doing was ever finishing anything. Um, she had been working on uh, research about the occupation of Guernsey for about 20 years before she finally sat down and began to write the book. And it was with the assistance of her writing group who urged her on when her spirits flagged that she actually finally finished the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society in about 2005. And she didn't just finish it. She went on and got an agent and worked with the agent and then finally had a manuscript ready to send out to publishers and did indeed send it out to publishers and it was a, a, a it was sort of a, a wild auction. People, everybody wanted it. It was very exciting and everybody in the family was so thrilled because Marianne had not only finished a book, but she had a very popular book on her hands, and the book was accepted for publication by the Dial Press at Random House, and it was all extremely exciting, and we drank champagne, and we ate cake, and we, we called up everybody we knew, and, and, and then Marianne got sick. Um, it, was just, it was just very soon after the book had been accepted, and of course, several months later, um, as always happens, the editor who had acquired the book came back to Marianne with a lot of rewrites, Um, the central issue being that she wanted the book to be longer. And at that point, Marianne was sick, was quite ill, and felt that she could not start writing again. And that's when she called me up and said, you are the other writer in the family, because I had published several books by them. And she said, can you finish this book for me? 
And I said, why, certainly, Marianne, that will be no problem. And inside I was thinking, this is completely crazy, because how do you write somebody else's book? Um, And also, what do I know about the occupation of the Channel Island of Guernsey during the Second World War by the Nazis? But that seemed somewhat minor. Um, But I loved my aunt, and I wanted her to have the success that she had always dreamed of. And so I said, yes, of course, I'll do this thing. And then um, I sat down and began to write it and discovered that really what enabled me to write this book was the fact that I had grown up with Mary and and I knew her voice so well. And so I went forward with the manuscript. It's not as though... I picked up at page 180 and everything thereafter is my writing. It was really that I was, my mandate was to make the book longer, to add more to what was already there. So that's what I did. It's my voice mixing with Mary Ann's voice all the way through. And I worked on it for considerably less time than she worked on it, but we, you know, managed to uh, create a manuscript that the editor wanted and then it was published you know, it was coming out in 2008, and um, tragically, Marianne did not live to see the published book, um, and I became the <laughs> the author who was on the ground after the book became this enormous success. So the, the edition I read has a, an afterword dated in 2009, and I have to admit it made me feel pretty sad when I read it. P- perhaps you can explain a little bit more about the type of person that Marianne was. Marianne was, uh, she was the most entertaining person I've ever met in my life. But what strikes me as unspeakably tragic, and what is probably what you're talking about when you say that it made you feel sad, is that you have this person who felt so instantly impassioned about the story of Guernsey's occupation, who had found, after a lifetime of struggling to write, had found the story that she was was inspired by, that drove her to finally finish a novel, that this was her dream, this book was her dream, and she did not live to see it. This just kills me. It will never cease to strike me as a terrible tragedy that Marianne did not get to see this book published, did not get to see the movie made. Now, as for what kind of a person Marianne was, I mean, that's right there on the page. And I think everybody can see in the, particularly in the character of Juliet, the main character, that capacity that Marianne had herself of being delighted and fascinated by other people's stories. And also, of course, Marianne's passion for reading, her deep love and sort of involvement with everything she read, all of that's there on the page, too. But those, those are traits that Marianne brought to the world. And, you know, she was an utter delight. Everybody who ever met her thought, in about a minute and a half after you started talking to her, you would say to yourself, my God, this woman had better write a novel soon. And it just took her a lifetime to do it. So down to the technicalities, you're in California, how did you make yourself familiar with Guernsey and what it went through in World War II? Mm, This was a bit tricky. I had access to all of Marianne's 
research materials. I mean, she, as I said, she had been researching the occupation and various resistance movements in the Second World War in general and, and the war itself for 20 years. So she had accumulated quite a library about the occupation and about the island and about, you know, all aspects that you could ever want to know about Guernsey, not just its history during World War II, but what it had been what had happened there before. So I had access to all of her books, which was immensely helpful. Um, I also happened to live in Berkeley, California, which is the home of the University of California at Berkeley, which is the home of a really great research library. And so I would run up against things, terrible problems, like needing to see a map of Guernsey in the 1930s before the war. And you know, thank God I live where I live because I could actually find one. That was fantastic. But the, there were there were some terrible problems, and um, I I became the most annoying person in the world making phone calls to, you know, like the, the botanical society of Guernsey. There was a poor woman there. I kept harassing about when when the trees bloomed. And, you know, I would call all sorts of people. Anybody who would answer the phone on the island of Guernsey, I called and begged for information because I was pretty desperate when it came down to it. So for, for me, Guernsey isn't really that far away a place. I, I remember going there on a school trip when I was 11 or 12. And the first mm-hmm. thing you, you realize when you get there is how, much, how many French references there are. So yeah. the island is much closer to the France than it is to, to Britain. Um, yes, and it looks it, too. I mean, once I got there, it became completely clear to me that it might be British in its history, but it's a piece of Normandy that fell off. All you have to do is look at the color of the cliffs, and it's clear what you're looking at. And it's a, it was a... Um, a very it, it it has a great deal of French influence and it's developed its own you know own uh, independent culture that's a combination of the British and the French but the the actual native language of Guernsey Guernese is is much Frencher sounding than it is English sounding and those cliffs those German pillboxes on the cliffs are still very noticeable. The thing I always remember is we were taken to an underground hospital which had been built by the slave workers and this must have been 1979 or 1980 and at the time it was not, uh, not, it's not the right word, but uh, fancied up the way some historical exhibits have been and Uh it was just a concrete building with wire and you could still see the beds, the original beds from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And I remember taking yeah. a camera, an old camera, and pushing it up against a wire to take a photo of these terrible beds that uh, were sort of rotting and rusting and falling apart in this dark, damp, concrete bunker, in which I, yeah. it was a very, very sad place. Yeah, it's, it's all, that's still there. Although it has been gussied up a little bit, it's, it's still, it, it exudes misery. I mean, that was supposed to be... Um, the field hospital for the invasion of um, England. They were yeah. going to, you know, remove the, the 
the first wounded there. But um, one thing they found when they put anybody who actually was wounded in that hospital, they died immediately from the damp. So it was never very much used, but it's a horrible place. It really is. And that the, the, you can see all over the island, you can see these, these bits of concrete, these, these horrible little objects, you know, gun, gun turrets and pillboxes all over the place. It, it, the island is studded with remnants. You can, never get, you can never remove that stuff. It's so thick on the ground. So is it true that book clubs existed in the 1940s? Was that a thing? Well, they weren't called book clubs. They were called literary societies, um, and they did exist. Uh, it was a very common thing in America. My, my grandfather was in one, um, and they were not. They didn't usually have the format that we associate with book clubs now. In that, it wasn't a group of people all reading the same book because it just wasn't viable to try to get hold of that many copies of one book. So, really, the format was generally what is discussed in Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. One person read the book and gave a presentation on it, thus hoping to goad the other members of the society into reading the book. And so sometimes there would be people reading different books on a similar theme or different books by the same author, and there would be a discussion, but oftentimes it was one person reading a book and then presenting on it. Not exactly what we would call a book club, but the same general idea. And for modern-day book clubs, I believe when I look at how people discuss the book online that it is loved by modern-day book clubs. Would you agree with that point? Oh, I think it's I think it's been a darling of book clubs ever since it first came out. I mean, it's it's it, I hear from so many groups, um, and it, their their hearts are warmed um, by the model of the book club that's in it. I suppose um, it does make it does make being in a book club as charming as possible. In the book, it really it really is a perfect book club book. I'd have to say. And what do you think is the the books? lasting legacy well i i think there is that um there is that important message that community and art literature can triumph over every form of oppression ever invented that there is no there is no stopping art from its own freedom, and that the ideas that are to be found in books um, and the way that they ignite people will never be stamped out. It cannot be oppressed. So I think that that is one very important piece of the book. Um, And then I think there's another piece, too, and that is that, particularly here in America, this was an unknown story about World War II, that, that these English islands were occupied by the Nazis. That was absolutely not known. Um, you know, when I was doing research on Guernsey, when I was writing the book in 2007, you would look up Guernsey and you'd get Guernsey County, Ohio. Uh, nobody, no Americans just don't know where it is. But I hope and I think that the book has made this story uh more will uh, come to mind more. I think it has become a much more widely known story. And I think that that is 
terribly important. I know it was important to Marianne. I know that what inspired her to want to write the book was her rage that this historical episode, that this very important historical episode had been ignored. And the reason why it's important is, yeah, sure, it's important to know that these things happen, but it's also important because something very unusual happened on that island when Germans and English people live together for five years, it becomes a sort of an undefining of the the term enemy. Who is your enemy? If you're actually living with them for five years, it becomes looser and softer. And I think, as you know, a citizen of the most warlike nation on earth, I think we've got a lot to learn from what happened on Guernsey, how people can live with their enemies and stop viewing them as enemy and start viewing them as individuals. That's hugely important. And I hope that that's part of the legacy, too. I really hope that people think about that piece of the story. I wonder if it's inspired people to visit Guernsey. (laughs) Yes, it has, as I know very well from the Visit Guernsey Tourism Bureau. Yes, it has. It has inspired a lot of people um, to come and take a look. And now I used to get lots of letters from from, uh, women saying, I'm going to Guernsey to find me a poetic pig farmer. And I would say, good luck with that. But there are also people who are interested in, in the historical episode and, you know, what, what went on there, what are the events of Guernsey. And they have, they have really experienced a, an uptick in their tourism. There is a potato peel pie tour that's offered of the island. You can go around and look at um, the sites of the book on the island. So I think they wouldn't have that if there weren't people coming to see it. Um, not to say that there's not plenty of other nice things to look at on the island as well. Yes, it's a pretty island. It's it's warm mm-hmm. and they uh, grow a lot of tomatoes there. I, I remember seeing the tomato farms a lot. Mm-hmm. And they there's also some uh, there's some uh, fabulous Neolithic sites on the island. Last time I was there. I, you know, I have seen all of the occupation sites once, twice, thrice, um, and so I got myself off into some Neolithic caves that were just fantastic, and Victor Hugo was exiled there, so you can go look at his house as well. Indeed. So, the Potato Peel Pie book is an epistolary novel. I hope I've said that correctly. Mm-hmm, you that, have, you have. That means it is told through documents, mostly letters. Um, now... I noticed that you used to work for Chronicle and you acquired a book called Griffin and Sabine by Nick Bantock, which mm-hmm. is another epistolary book, one which mm-hmm. we love a lot in this office. Um, yes. Perhaps you can explain why that book is also special. Ah, oh, that book was wonderful. Uh, uh, from, a, from the standpoint of being an editor, it doesn't get much better than Griffin and Sabine. This was um, a book that I found actually before I was a full-fledged editor. Uh, Nick came in to talk to the children's book editor. He wanted, he was doing covers, he, illustrations, and she saw down in the bottom of his bag, she saw this little square book. And she said, what is that thing? And he took it out, and it was a dummy, a, a mock-up of Griffin and Sabine. Well, the children's book editor quickly realized it was not a children's book, and so she said, well, why don't you show this to Annie down the hall? And I once I took a look at it, I saw letters and pictures, the story, a love story told in pictures and letters. I thought, wow, this is the most 
thrilling thing I've ever seen. I would love to be able to do a book that looks exactly like this mock-up I'm seeing, because in the mock-up, there were real envelopes you would open and pull out the letters and read about this, this love story between Griffin and Sabine. And, of course, all the experienced editors said, ha, 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 you'll never be able to do that, ha, 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 that you can't put letters in a book, you can't have real envelopes in a book, you can't have real postcards in a book, don't be crazy. And I was young and foolish and, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I, um, I thought, well, I'll just try. And so as it ended up, we managed to produce the book that was pretty much exactly the same as The Dummy, and it was uh, a, a runaway bestseller. It was Chronicle Books' first New York Times bestseller because it was such an unusual and beautiful book, and Nick's art was so enchanting. And I think that the the epistolary piece of this is part of the thrill of the book because there is something incredibly pleasing about reading other people's mail. I mean, you're really just not supposed to do it. And so it's, you, you, feel a little, um, you feel a little sort of furtive and um, transgressive when you read the book, which is, again, as I say, part of the fun. And likewise, I think with Guernsey, people like reading other people's letters. You know, from my standpoint as a writer, I think it's brilliant because I get to use uh, 26 different first-person voices, um, which is always a little pop of energy every time you do it, and it's, it was very effective. I thought it was a very effective strategy to tell that historical tale. It's a wonderful book, another great legacy. Thank you. Now, to, the, to today, uh, you write books for grown-ups, for adults, and for children. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. I thought it was interesting, it would be interesting to learn how you, you balance those two worlds, those responsibilities. Yes, well, they're very different. I used to try to do uh, do that do adult writing and children's writing on the same day, and that was complete bust. I can't do it because really, the great work of writing for children is the is ridding oneself of one's adult sensibility and returning as honestly as possible to one's childhood self. I have to take away all the things I want as a grown-up, peel them back and get back to the kid and try to be true to what kids want. It's really hard. And so I, I have to, right now I'm working on a kid's book, and if I try to mix it up with adult work, um, it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up because the adult work that is it, I'm writing for somebody I am. The kid work I'm writing for somebody I am not. I was, but I'm not anymore. So it's a very delicate balance, and you, I can't mix them too much or I start to sound like an idiot in both directions. So it, it's, it's riveting. I love writing for kids. I love hanging out with kids. I love the parameters of kids' books. I love the imaginative work, and I also... You know, I do think I'm completely hilarious in my kids' books, which is nice. And, um, so then the adult books are a much more complicated writing project, you know, just on a, on a working the sentence level. Um, so they each, each has its own charms, and I, but I can't imagine giving, giving either of them up. I've, um, I've got my first picture book, pictures not by me, thank goodness, coming out this fall. And that was sort of the last 
thing that I felt I could never do. Um, and I, was, I, I whacked away at writing a picture book for, for years, trying to figure out how to write something so tight, so short, so small, and yet so open to visual life. And I couldn't figure it out, and I couldn't figure it out. And then finally, I think I've got it. I've written my second one, and it's coming out. It'll be coming out next year. So it's, it's, it's endlessly fascinating to be involved in this huge range of um, ways to approach writing and you have a long-running series of children's books about uh two girls ivy and bean who are quite different characters perhaps you can explain a little bit about those two characters oh my darling ivy and bean well um they 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 don't like each other before they meet they they have keep an eye on each other and ivy is a a quiet girl who likes to read big books and beans um, a loud mouth who likes to run around and yell and scream and fall out of trees and stomp in puddles so before they meet they each think the other one is no good at all but what they discover when they get together is that ivy is not as quiet and namby pamby as she looks in fact she's kind of um she's kind of a, a creative genius and bean is the a person who will take on any adventure. She supplies the actual physical bravery. And so together they have more fun than they could ever have by themselves. And again, um, as I say, I, I think I'm completely hilarious. So I write these books and I just laugh and laugh and laugh. And, you know, when I get together with kids, after one comes out, I, you know, I go out on tour and I meet a lot of kids. And I have to say, there is just nothing better in the whole world than reading a book aloud to kids and having them laugh and laugh and laugh. We're all laughing by the end. And, you know, grown-ups are great, but they never do that. <laughs> so it, I think it must be fair to say that books have shaped your entire life. Mm-hmm. It's pretty true. I think I sometimes worry, you know, what could I possibly do? It, you know, I have really no other skills. I've, I've done... All my life I've been a bookseller, I've worked in libraries, I was an editor, I write books now, but what am I going to do if this all goes south? I have no other skills. I, I, I'm going to have to become a palm reader or something. It's terrible. Um, I have a very limited skill set. It's all books all the time. I think that's okay. You think? Because there's so many directions you can go in. I guess. I, I, I mean, I, I, think I, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay, but still, it does seem like you should be able to do something else entirely. Yeah. It's like asking someone, do you have books in every room at home? Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I don't trust people who don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Annie, one last question, which we always ask. Uh, what are you reading today? And I'm willing to bet that you're reading at least three books today. Yes, I am reading three books, and I was hoping that you would give me the chance to talk about all three of them. Uh, well, Actually, one of them I just finished last night, So, but I still I will count it because I haven't started, started another novel. I just finished Kudos by Rachel Cusk, which is the third part of her trilogy um, about a character who has almost no name. I think her, I actually, I don't know what her name is, but it's, it is that these novels are all just recounted conversations she has with people she meets in the course of her life. And so talk about voyeuristic fantasy. It's fantastic. Um, I'm reading the um, complete correspondence of Charles Dickens, volume six, because why wouldn't I? Um, uh, I love these books. This is the second time I've gone through them. There's, it's a 12-volume set, and there's thousands of footnotes, and I just 
I just love these books. I'm pretty much going to read them for the rest of my life. And I'm reading Ron Chernow's uh, biography of Grant. So those are my three books that I've got on my plate right now. Wow. There's some quite substantial ones there. The Grant one must be quite thick. Yes. I'm reading it on an iPad because I, I got the book itself, and I couldn't lift it. And, and that's a big problem. I, I was sort of falling over trying to actually hold on to the thing. Yeah, I'm, I, I was thinking I was going to have to chop it up with a kitchen knife, but I decided that probably just reading it on the iPad was a better solution. Yeah, so I'm, I'm reading um, a book called Breaking News by Alan Rusbridger, who used to be the editor of The Guardian in London. Oh, I bet it's great. What's it, what, what aspect of journalism is it about? So The Guardian is, a, as you probably know, a fairly liberal newspaper, but he is talking about the change from print to online news media and basically how news as we know it has fallen apart mm-hmm. and how the newspaper industry has suffered or failed to change so it's it's very he's describing people in the newsroom around 2000 trying to figure out what google is yes and and trying to resist trying to say to themselves oh this is a this is a flash in the pan this will all go away but the guardian really converted i mean they they made the change didn't they yes they they invested in digital technology pretty early mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and didn't put up firewalls, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, uh, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do enjoy that stuff. Uh, I think that they, I mean, their literary uh, articles are the best, pretty much the best in the business, as far as I can tell. I mean, I guess the New York Review has some good stuff, too. But they, the Guardian stuff is, you know, the way they talk about literature and the prominence that they give to books, I think they do a great job. Yeah, I think very few daily newspapers give that amount of daily news. So they have they have a, a well, at least one and a half reporters dedicated to book news each day. Oh gosh, that's so nice. That was, yeah, I can't picture that happening in the U.S., but God bless them. Yes, well, you never know, right? You never know. There's, that's kind of the thing. You can go for book news in all sorts of places now, so... Mm-hmm. Not just the newspapers. But either way, I'm enjoying it, and I'm glad you're enjoying the books. So yes. that is all we have time for this week. Um, uh-huh. Annie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting hear a bit, hearing about your experiences. Uh, and thank you. I've had a good time talking about it. Now, Annie's books are available in many places. I won't list them, but you can get them all over the place. Um, you can learn more about what she does at anniebarrows.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis from Abe Books, and we'll see you next time.